morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 4 today. We're calling the sermon Jesus for Humanity. Um, we're kind of continuing off where we were last week. Last week we talked about how we're all made in the image of God, and so we honor the life of the unborn. This week we'll be continuing that theme, uh, building off that same theology. We're all made in the image of God, and therefore we are to be a multi-ethnic people of God. Our primary identity is as humans and should be as humans saved by grace through Christ. And then our secondary identities are where we come from and uh, what family we have and what nation uh, we descend from. Uh, we're this week focused on this to honor Martin Luther King uh, with the holiday coming up tomorrow. And so we want to remember the theology that his civil rights movement was based out of, the theology that we were all, uh, we're all unified in Christ. We also want to uh, encourage you to buy some books to study the subject further because there's no way I can kind of tackle everything uh, that we want to talk about today. There's two books in particular that we're selling in the hallway, uh, so I'll show these to you. One is called Let Justice Roll Down by John Perkins. He's a famous evangelical pastor that uh, did civil rights work in Mississippi in the 60s when things were uh, really at its worst. And so for those of you that uh, maybe you're younger and don't really know what it was like, uh, don't know the full extent of the racism that was happening in our country. This would be really helpful, so it's more a historical, biographical type uh, book, so I recommend that one to you. I really enjoyed this. This one is called One New Man. It's by Jarvis Williams, a theologian, uh, seminary professor, and this one's more strictly theology, just the theology, what the Bible has to say about racial reconciliation and ethnicity, so they're both very helpful, but from different perspectives. One's more biographical, one's more theological. Uh, a couple other resources up here, a couple of articles by Anthony Bradley, an African-American theology professor at King's College. Um, those are here just for you to look at. This one is a book by John Piper called Bloodlines. It's also helpful. Uh, and then I just want to remind you all this month that one of the ways that we can honor every life and every ethnicity is by uh, supporting the work of Hope Pregnancy Center. Um, since abortion was legalized 43 years ago, um, it's disproportionately uh, taken the lives of minorities. Uh, and so one of the ways we honor life, uh, those that are living, is we also honor life uh, of the unborn and try to, try to stop what, what could be called a, a holocaust against minorities in the abortion industry. So those books are up here. As I said, two are for sale in the hallway. They're not really for sale. They're for donation, right? So if you've got money, throw it in the jar. If you don't have money, just take the book anyway. Um, but those are available, and you can look at all of them up front as well. Uh, we're going to read Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. So if you'll follow along with me, this is um, kind of hard to understand on the first reading, but I think we'll make more sense of it as we go along this morning. Uh, so follow with me. This is Jesus' first sermon in the book of Luke. So Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So this is the, like the Jewish place of worship, the gathering very similar to the church in the Jewish context. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. 
And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So Jesus' claim that God cared for these other tribes, these other people, these other ethnicities, that God was pursuing other people groups, made them crazy, made them violent, and they wanted to throw him off a cliff. So racism was alive and well in the time of Jesus as much as it is today. I'm going to pray and ask God to teach us what he's trying to say to us this morning and to help us. So so let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and we thank you that we can uh, gather as a multi-ethnic people of God because of what Jesus accomplished for us. We're all united in our sin and we're all united in our hope in Jesus as the only one that can cleanse us and make us new. So God, we pray that you would teach us from the scriptures this morning. We would see what you see we would be able to honor each other as made in the image of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we moved to the Harker Heights Clean Area about 10 years ago uh, when we started the church. The church is almost 10 years old now. And when we did, I was really excited to move to a city that is very multi-ethnic, that is very integrated, that is very diverse. Uh, Neighborhoods in other cities I've lived in uh, are more segregated. You know, people... Uh, Hispanic people live in this neighborhood, and Asian people live in this neighborhood, and white people live here, and uh, African Americans live here. And so you see that as very common, especially in the South. Uh, And so one of the cool things about our city is that it's a very integrated city. It's one of the beautiful things about our city. And unfortunately, we have to thank the army for that and not the church. And so my prayer is that the church would more and more manifest that same sort of beautiful multi-ethnic diversity, because what God says is we all matter because we're made in his image, and that we all have the same problem, that problem is sin, and we all need the same solution, that solution is Jesus. And so our theology should lay the foundation for a multi-ethnic, diverse congregation. And I thank God that we are, to some extent, multi-ethnic and diverse, but we as a leadership pray that we would become more that way, that our um, diversity as a church would reflect more and more the diversity of the city. The city's more diverse than, than we are as a congregation, and our prayer is that God would give us more. And so we, we're coming to this uh, topic humbly saying, God, we don't really know how to do this, but we see that that's your vision. And so I'd ask you as we talk about this, as we pray about this, that you would pray with us as well, that you would pray that God would move, that this would be something that would happen because of the gospel and not because we've forced it to happen in our own flesh. It's not something we do by our own strength, but it's something we do in response to who God is and his character. When we first moved to the city, I was so excited about the diversity and felt like this will be great and, you know, get to know uh, neighbors and friends of different ethnicities. And, and our, right when we moved in, we had African-American neighbors, 
My kids had best friends who were African-American, played all the time. I was like, wow, this is cool. It's happening, right? This is happening. We, we live in a diverse city. It's more diverse uh, than cities we've lived in before. And I was really excited about that. But the other thing that happens in clean is people move away, right? So at first we had neighbors. It was easy. They moved away. Then we had more neighbors. It was easy, and they moved away. And uh, I tried to build friendships because I felt like if, if we're going to move this church in the direction of being more multi-ethnic, I needed personally to have more, more friends of, of different ethnicity. And so I tried, and you know, I'd uh, become friends with people through sports or our neighbors, and we'd get to know each other and go to lunch, and then guys wouldn't call me back, and for some reason they wouldn't want to hang out with me, <laughs> or people would move, or whatever it was. I just, I just started to feel like, man, I, I cannot do this. This is not working. And you know what happened? I decided to pray. I thought, okay, God, maybe you want me to pray about this because obviously I stink at this. It's not working. You know, it's not happening by my flesh. It's not happening by my strength. My wisdom is not getting us there. And so I started praying. And a couple of months into this prayer, it was about 2010, um, this pastor comes and knocks on my door. Uh, I guess he actually walked in and talked to my secretary. But anyway, he came here to the church and he said, hey, I'm Wesley Pope. I'm pastoring, planting a new church right next door. They were planting here in the shopping center right next door to us and said, just wanted to get to know you because we're neighbors. And I, I wanted to just like jump on him and hug him in the moment, but I thought that would scare him. So like, you're the, you're the one I've been praying for, right? <laughs> I'd been praying that God would bring me uh, friends of different ethnicities. I'd been praying that God would make this happen. And I mean, it was, it was a month or two later, he, he walked up. We became friends, and after I got to know him and I knew it wouldn't freak him out, I let him know that he was the guy I had been praying for. And we've built a friendship over the years and gotten to know each other, and that's helped me in my own journey of understanding uh, what it's like to grow up as a minority in a, in a, in a culture where I'm a part of the majority culture. Um, and I think that's an important thing for us to understand that are white, that, that there's a different perspective, there's different stresses, there's different tensions that minorities live through that, that we don't fully understand because we haven't experienced it. So my prayer is that we would be sympathetic, that we would be compassionate, and that we would be understanding to minorities in our culture. And I believe we do that, again, as an expression of the gospel. We don't pursue diversity because it's trendy. We don't pursue diversity because it's cool or it looks nice on a poster. We pursue it because we believe deeply that we're all one. We're all one as sinners, and we're all one as being saved by Jesus. And so that's, again, the direction I hope to take us in. And I would say, if you don't hear anything else, just hear from my own story, that, that my prayer for you is that you'd be praying and that you'd be building friendships. That's my goal for us as a congregation. Again, we, we hope to see more. We pray for more. But I would ask you as individuals to pray and build friendships. The, the first thing I want us to see in the text is really going before our section, and this occurs in the last verse of chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4, we see a context, right? So I read you the story starting in verse 16, and now I want to refer back to everything before that. And what we see in Luke, the way Luke wrote his Gospels, he sets this up so that we understand that Jesus, he is the Jewish king, and that's important and that's prophetic. But Luke goes to great pains to show us that Jesus is not just descended from the Jews and the tribe of Judah, the kingly line of King David, but he's also descended from Adam. He's a human. Jesus is united to all humanity. That's a very important theological concept, okay? And that is a foundation, again, just like last week we looked at the foundation that we're all made in the image of God. Now Jesus comes along. He's the Messiah. He's not just a Jew. 
he's united with all humans. He's universal. He's, he's an everyman, so to speak. Look at verse 38 in chapter 3. If you just flip back one page, you see at the very end of chapter 3, uh, the end of a genealogy, right? A list of Jesus's uh, dads and grandparents, right? The people he descends from. It says the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke wants to make that point. He's not just a Jew, he's universally a human. He's a human, and all humans are connected. That's important for us to understand. And then chapter 4, the story we get right before our story, is that Jesus is tempted in the desert just like Father Adam. The difference is Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. So I have a picture, amen. Thank you. I have a picture here of someone eating an apple. Um, We are all one We're all born of the same tribe. Romans chapter 5 goes into detail to explain this. We're all born in the tribe of Adam. Adam is all of our uh, universal grandparents, right? We're all all united. He is our grandfather universally as humans. We're all sinners. We all replay what happened in the garden. We all live that out in our own life. We all say, God is you know, thanks and everything, but I'd rather have the blessings without a relationship with you. I'd rather be my own God. I'd rather not have you telling me what to do. So thanks, but see you later. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what we do. We're all one in Adam. We're all united in our sin. We're all part of that tribe. We're born into that tribe. No matter what color you are, no matter what family you come from, no matter what background you have, none of our cultures are, are clean. None of our cultures are sinless. None of our cultures are pure. We're all descended from Adam. We're all sinners. And so Jesus is also descended from Adam, but we know the difference, right? What's the difference? Jesus didn't sin. Jesus is sinless. So this story that Luke gives us in chapter 4, 1 through 15, again, go back and read it this week, is the story of him being tempted by Satan in the wilderness and him resisting that temptation. The interesting thing, there's so many layers to the story. The interesting thing is it echoes the story of Adam in the garden, but you know what? Adam was tempted in paradise. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes you hear the story of Adam and Eve, and you're like, man, I can't believe he did that. I wouldn't have done that, right? Like, if I had everything perfect, I wouldn't have disobeyed God. The only reason I disobey God is because we live in this broken wilderness, right? Well, Jesus was in the wilderness. He was tempted by Satan, and he resisted that temptation. And so we can all be born in Adam, and Romans 5 says, by faith, we can now be united and all be in Christ. He's our only hope. Our culture is not our hope. Our education is not our hope. Our color is not our hope. The songs of our forefathers is not our hope. The food that we love to eat is not our hope. The style of music, the, any of those secondary characteristics that come along with culture, those are secondary. What Luke is trying to show us here is there's a primary identity we're all united by our sin in Adam, and we can all be united by Jesus. We can be in Christ. So according to the Scripture, according, again, specifically to Romans 5, there's only two races of humanity. There's the race of being in Adam, and there's the race of being in Christ. So my question for you is, is what is your race? Another way of saying it is, what is your hope? What is your primary identity? This doesn't mean that we kind of throw out and despise our secondary characteristics, right? Like we can be thankful, we can respect our forefathers, we can be thankful for the country we came from, we can be 
thankful for these cultural characteristics. We can embrace them, celebrate them, love. You know, I'm this way. I came from here. That matters. I like it. But again, it's secondary. The Bible is always pushing us to make our primary identity who God is, who we are in Christ. Our ultimate problem is sin, and the ultimate solution is Jesus, dying on the cross to take our sins upon himself and to to give us new life. And when we have that now new unified identity in Christ, when we have that brotherhood as brothers and sisters in Christ, then we can actually respect each other's cultures, right? It gives us the ability to honor and respect a culture that's different from ours because it's not primary, because there's no competition there. It also gives us the ability to critique our own culture, to hold it up to the standards of Scripture and to say, well, I was raised to think this, but what does the Bible actually say? To to test every part of our culture, to both embrace it and celebrate it, but also test it. And some parts of your culture, you know, I know enough of you to know there's some of you, the way you were raised, you're like, this was good, this was good, but you know what? This was bad, and I'm throwing it out. We're not going to repeat that in my family. The Scripture gives us the ability to do that, to test these things and to say, my my primary identity, my primary culture is belonging to Jesus. And that's, again, the foundation for multi-ethnic diversity in any congregation. So my first question, which race do you belong to? What do you see as your primary identity? And it may not even be ethnicity, right? It, it may be your job. It may be your school, right? It, it may be your neighborhood. It may be your zip code. It may be your hobby, maybe your loves, maybe your passions. The scripture pushes us to make those things secondary and to say Jesus is primary. Jesus is primary. And because Jesus is primary, I can receive with thanksgiving some of these secondary cultural issues, but I can also critique them. I can also honor others that are different than me, and we can begin to get along. We can begin to have a dialogue and begin to live as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. The next thing that we see as this story unfolds is we see that Jesus has compassion for hurting humanity. Jesus has compassion. And part of the problem with a majority culture in any country is we sometimes think we've arrived, right? Because a majority culture, by definition, has more power, has more resources. And just to take it out of American context... I would say this is true in any country. If you've traveled to other countries, you've seen racism, right? It's always interesting to go to another country and say, oh, they have racism there. But, you know, in that context, this is a majority culture and this is minority culture. You know, they look like this and these guys look like that. Sometimes you can't even tell the difference and they they can tell the difference, right? You go into a culture and you're like, wait, aren't you all the same? They're like, no, no, we're totally different. They're bad. I'm good, right? And so there's always these differences in whatever culture you go to. And one of, the, one of the problems we have that prevents us uh, from loving each other is thinking, I don't need compassion. They do. They're, they're the broken, small, messed up culture, right? But I, my culture's fine. My culture's healthy. And we see this when Jesus is preaching in his hometown. Look, look again at the story. I'm just going to pick it up in verse 18 where he's, he's quoting Isaiah, right? So Jesus is giving a story, a sermon in his hometown. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah, in context, was speaking to exiled people, right? Israel had been disobedient and they'd been pushed out of their nation. Babylon conquered them. They were spread everywhere. 
Uh, now in Israel's history, they start coming back into the promised land, and so Jesus is coming and speaking to them in first century context. And in the first century, the Jews were back in their homeland, but they still had a sense that they weren't completely restored from exile, right? Somewhat similar to some of the struggles we have in our culture now, right, where we said slavery is illegal, but there's still oppression that happens, right? There's this kind of struggle of like, it's not, it's not all better yet. I think it was even stronger in the Jewish context in Israel. They were feeling oppressed by Rome, and they didn't feel like they'd completely arrived yet. They didn't have full freedom. So they were looking for a Messiah to come and set them free so they didn't have oppressors anymore. So they were independent. And they tended to see it in very physical ways, right? Political ways, um, physical ways, not spiritual. They didn't really see that they were oppressed by sin. They didn't really see all the time. Now, obviously, some of them saw this, and they were the ones receptive to Jesus. But for the most part, they didn't see that their hearts were twisted and broken and they needed salvation. They just saw the Romans are in charge. We don't want that anymore. We want a a general Messiah to come in, right? A warrior Messiah to come in and throw off Rome. It says in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him, marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So they're like, hey, this guy's good. And then they started asking wait, isn't this, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, so it's like, there's this tension. Yeah, he's got good stuff to say, but wait, we, we know him, right? This doesn't make sense. He's, he's Joseph's son. They're carpenters, you know, and so they're kind of wrestling with this, and Jesus knows where they're going, and he says in verse 23, Doubt, doubtless, you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So he'd been healing people in Capernaum, and Jesus is basically saying, you're probably going to want me to prove it, right? He just said, he's here, he's the Messiah, he's come to set them free from exile, he's come to fulfill the promises of Isaiah 61. Jesus says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. Here I am, I'm the man. And they're like, hmm, he's a pretty good teacher, but wait, that's weird, he can't be the man. He's Joseph, you know, they're kind of wrestling with it. And Jesus is saying, I know what you want. You want physical healing. You want me to do some miracles, you know, you want me to, to, uh, to dance, do a little performance in front of you. And he's saying, I'm not, I'm not going to do that until you humble yourself and you recognize your need for spiritual healing. And again, we, get, we understand that he's saying that as we unroll and unfold the rest of the story. We look at more, it'll, it becomes more clear in context. But the problem was always people wanting the blessings of God without wanting the restored relationship with God. Jesus is saying there's still a heart problem here. The Messiah will come and show compassion and he will heal, but there's something more important than physical healing than you need. And so what we want to recognize is that in the Bible, physical healing is always a blessing of God, but it's always pointing us to our need for spiritual healing. And so what we've seen in the history of our own country is we've seen uh, Christian churches and denominations and brands tend to kind of separate to extremes. And we see an extreme sometimes called the liberal church that tends to focus on physical, economic um, healing from oppression, right? And the, the danger over there is they've kind of started to throw out the Bible and they kind of allegorize everything to be physical healing, everything to be political healing and political liberty, right? We have a whole theology called liberation theology that tends to do that. It says we don't really need to be saved from our sins. We just need to be saved from economic oppression, 
The other extreme over here is in the history of conservative, especially white evangelical churches in our country. We've tended to say, well, we don't want to throw out the Bible, so we'll just be over here telling people about Jesus, but not lifting a finger to help them physically. And James has really hard words for that, saying that's not, that's not true Christianity. If you have no actual physical concrete compassion for people, then the words you say don't, don't match your actions. And so I believe the scripture calls us to live in the middle. Scripture calls us to live in the middle to care for people's physical situation, but to proclaim, you know, what's your primary need is Jesus. So we don't, we don't go to one extreme or the other. We don't throw out one or throw out the other. We say, no, we, need, we still need the word. We still need the gospel. That's what you really need. The problem is your spiritual condition. And only when that spiritual condition is being reset, then do we become a kind of community where we actually are not selfish anymore. We actually love other people. We actually care about other people's problems. Without that, it's all just, it's all just political ideologies. It's all just theories. It's all just philosophies. But if we actually know that we need compassion, then we can have compassion on other people. A book I've really enjoyed that we've used as we've gone to Guatemala to help people in third world countries is a book called When Helping Hurts. It's a long book and it's kind of complicated, but if you're involved in and helping people, I would really highly recommend it. And one of the things that the book establishes early on is that the big mistake people make when they try to help someone of another culture is they think that they're saviors, right? We think, I've got my stuff together. My culture's healthy, so I'll come help you and your unhealthy culture. And the book goes to great pains to show we're all unhealthy. And you know what? Even if someone is poor, or even if someone grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, or even if someone looks different than you, or even if someone was educated differently than you are, you have things to learn from them because they're made in the image of God. So it's especially important for those of us in majority culture to hear. It's also especially important for those of you that maybe have wealth or have position or have education, no matter what your ethnicity is. In both of those ways, if you feel like you have advantages, it can be easy to fall into thinking, I've arrived. I don't need compassion. Those other people need compassion. They're the messed up ones. So when we have a right spiritual relationship to God, we recognize, no, I'm messed up too. I might have a nice house. I might have a great job, right? I might have pulled myself up by my bootstraps and advanced far beyond my neighborhood and how I was raised. But ultimately, my real problem is my heart. I need Jesus to save me. I need him to make me new. So admit, admit that you need compassion. Um, there's a, a ministry that helps people uh, all over the world, specifically setting slaves free. And they do it from the standpoint that ultimately people need Jesus, but one of the ways we show people that they need Jesus and they need to be set free from their sins is by helping set them free physically. It's called the International Justice Mission. I grabbed a picture from their website here. Um, this is a man working in a brick factory who was enslaved, someone that they had helped to set free. And so what the International Justice Mission does is they go into third world countries where teenage girls have been enslaved in brothels or where uh, men or children have been enslaved in brick factories or cigarette factories. And they use the existing laws. In most countries, it is illegal to have slavery. They're just not enforcing the laws. So they go in uh, as former State Department people, law enforcement people, lawyers, and they help uh, the local people enforce the existing laws and literally set slaves free. So I'd argue that that's a beautiful thing. And, and we want to be involved 
as educators, as soldiers, as doctors, as lawyers, all these different vocations that God's given you, that's what you're doing. You're, you're bringing this kind of release, this kind of liberty to people in physical, concrete ways, and that's good. And we just always want to remember our ultimate need is for spiritual freedom, for spiritual freedom. Uh, as, as, we, as we go into the tensions of what that should look like in the political process, process uh, I want to recommend two writers to you that I found very helpful as I think through specifically the history of racism against African Americans in our country. Two guys that have written on the subject that I think are very helpful, but they have slightly different views. They, they both have the same theology. They're both uh, Christians, two African American theologians and Christians that blog and write on the subject, but sometimes they come out on different sides of the issue, so it's helpful to read uh, and kind of work through that. One is Anthony Bradley. He's a professor of theology at the King's College in New York City. Uh, he blogs a lot. I've got a couple of his articles up here on the stage if you want to look at them. Um, the other one is Jamar Tisby, who's preached here. He was the founder of the Reformed African American Network and a friend of mine. Um, and both of them have slightly different views, and they try to arrive at those views through Scripture. And I think sometimes when you, when you read opposing views and you see, you no, know, they both agree on Scripture, they both agree uh, that Christ sets people free and that our ultimate need is the gospel, but then that needs to work itself out in society that's helpful for us to learn and understand better what it looks like to apply the Scripture in our own context. So I'd recommend both of those guys to you uh, as authors that you can learn from, two leading African-American theologians uh, practicing their art here in America. The next thing I want us to see is that Jesus is forming a new humanity. But that's the goal, to have a new humanity. As I've said, that's, that's the goal of our congregation, that our congregation would be as diverse as the city is, uh, we pray for that. We pursue that. And Jesus shows that this has always been God's plan. It's not just a brand new thing in the New Testament. I believe it's stronger, more evident, and more clear in the New Testament. But even in the Old Testament, God was pursuing every tongue and tribe. And we see that if you pick up in verse 24. It says, And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So he's saying, Elijah, this great prophet, one of the greatest sets of prophets and miracle-working stories in the Bible is in First and Second Kings, where you, where you look at the stories of Elijah and Elisha. And he's saying, you know what? Elijah in his day didn't save the widows in Israel. He went and saved the widow in this other tribe, in this other place. And he's saying, if you, the people of God, do not receive with humility God's word, others will. And God has always cared about other tribes. It's not a tribe-centered issue. It's a faith-centered issue. And God was showing his people that again and again. He was, was he working through a specific tribe? Yes. But again and again, we're told that God worked through this specific tribe, the Jews, in order to reach all of us of all the other tribes, right? Maybe some of you are Jews, but most of us are not. Most of us are a part of these other tribes. And God is saving us through that one weak tribe so that he could show his grace. And then he tells another story about Elisha. So the very small difference in their names, Elisha came after Elijah. And it says in verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. He was a general uh, or an assistant to the king in this other nation, this nation that were enemies, conquerors of Israel. So again, a hated tribe, 
These were the bad peoples to the Jews. And Jesus is saying, but God showed grace to him. God saved him. God's always been saving other people. God's always been saving outsiders. He's always been building a multinational, multi-ethnic people of God. When they heard these things, it says, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. I love those escape stories about Jesus. And they all grabbed him and tried to kill him, and he just walked away. You know, you're like, wow, pretty impressive. Um, We have this picture that Jesus is giving us that he's forming a new humanity, and it's going to be people of every tribe. And is it clearer in the New Testament? Yes, but Jesus is saying it was always there. God was always doing this. He was always bringing people from other tribes into the fold. He's always been about the whole world. Ephesians 3.10 describes it this way. Ephesians is a great book to study uh, for a better theology of, of our primary identity being as a part of the new humanity in Christ. Ephesians talks about uh, the wall of separation between Jew and all of us other dirty tribes. That wall separated, right? Now we're one. Now we're all cleansed in Jesus. Now we're all the same in the new humanity that God is forming. And Ephesians 3.10, it uses peculiar language. It's interesting. It says, um, through the church, the, the new people of God, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the spiritual forces, right? Angels, demons, whatever, the spiritual authorities. God's showing what he's doing through the church, and he says it's a manifold wisdom, which is a really interesting word. Manifold is a fine translation. Uh, you know, you can hear in, even in the, the English there, many folds, right? Kind of like many dimensions, is what it means. It can also be translated multifaceted, right? Like a jewel with many sides. But the most common way it would have been heard in the first century would have been multicolored. Multicolored, Greek word polyoikos. And so it's interesting. It's been a theme throughout Ephesians. Paul is saying one new humanity, one new humanity, one new humanity, one new humanity. We all have the same problem, it's sin. We all have the same solution, it's Jesus. One new humanity. And Paul says, this new humanity, this wisdom is manifested through this multicolored church. That's what God is building. So I immediately think of Benetton ads from the 80s. And I, I use this picture because it's kind of corny, right? Like, does God want us all wearing multicolored jumpsuits? I don't know that that's necessarily what he's saying, but you know what? We can be cynical, right? We can be cynical because diversity is trendy. Diversity is cool, and sometimes it's, it's pushed on us as an end in and of itself. But, but I just want you to hear that it really, is, it really is God's goal. That's not his primary goal, right? His primary goal is his own glory. And he glorifies himself by saving us. And when he saves us, he puts us in a family together, brothers and sisters, Different languages, different colors, different backgrounds, different perspectives. We're united in our need and in our hope in Jesus. So Jesus repeatedly showed grace to outsiders. God in the Old Testament, he's proving here, repeatedly showed grace to outsiders. What are you doing to show grace to people that are outside of your culture, outside of your family, people that don't look like you, that don't talk like you, that weren't educated the same way you were, that see things differently. What are you doing 
to be like Jesus, to break down those barriers, to be family with other people. I would recommend to think about it in two ways. One is there are concrete steps you can take, right, to show hospitality. Just good old-fashioned having people over for dinner, sharing your resources, showing in concrete ways, I care about you. You're made in the image of God. You matter. What are some concrete ways you can do that? Secondly, I'd say how you speak to people really matters. Do you listen? Or do you think, no, my, my culture's right, and they don't really have anything to teach me. Or do you ask good questions and listen to other people? Do you want to know what they think? Do you want to know what they've experienced? Do you show compassion to minorities if you're a part of majority culture? And do you say, you know what? I don't know what it's like. Can you tell me what it's like? What's your experience been? Just showing human compassion, showing kindness. And then again, I'd come back to what I said at the very beginning. If, if you don't hear anything else, my, my prayer is that all of us as individuals would pray and build friendships. Would pray and build friendships. We'd be a hospitable people, but we'd also be a praying people saying, honestly, God, I don't, I don't know what it's like to see things through different eyes because I don't have those eyes. So praying, God, God, show me. God, help me. Help us to have a God-honoring diversity here. Not something that's trendy, not something that we force in our flesh. But God, would your spirit move so that it would be a genuine gospel-centered diversity? I want to end with this vision that we have at the end of the Bible in Revelation 5.9. He has this vision from heaven. And in Revelation 5, 9, it says, they sang a new song. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. God is forming a new people from every people, from every tribe from every tongue. That's what he's doing. So I'll just leave you with this question. Who are the people that you don't think should be there? Who are the people that you see as enemies? Who are the people that you see don't deserve to be there? And I would, I would challenge you with the gospel. Those people that have hurt you. Those people that look different than you do. Those people that have a different politics than you do. Those people don't deserve there to be there any more or any less than you do. The Bible says we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And our only hope is Jesus. And he's what unites us. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in communion. God, we thank you that you love us and you've united us in Jesus. We thank you for the vision that you give us of a diverse people of God that love each other because we're family. So God, I pray that you would teach us how to be that kind of people, that you would help us to be a sign to a watching world that diversity is not something to be forced, but it grows out of genuine compassion. It grows out of real hearts that have been changed by the gospel, real hearts that recognize none of us have a culture that have it all together. We have genuine things to learn from others and that we need you. We thank you for the grace you've shown us in Jesus. We pray that you would Uh, change us and grow us to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.